the guys who are building companies in Hong Kong, they're not building companies in Hong Kong for Hong Kong. They're building companies in Hong Kong for China, or they're building companies in Hong Kong for Europe or the US. Hi, welcome to the second season of Startup Roast with Gary and And I'm here today with Ryan Vaz of Pad39, who's a member here in our wine trust space. And we're going to have a little talk about um, his journey to Hong Kong, um, the work he's doing at the moment, and the future of digital transformation. I think first, Brian, let's just uh, get a bit of an introduction. What's your name, where you're from, and how did you end up in Hong Kong? <laughs> uh, so, yes, uh, I'm Brian, and we've known each other for a little while, but I can introduce myself. So, I'm actually from originally from Canada, but I grew up in Greece and India, so very much the definition of a third culture kid. Um, I originally came to Hong Kong about three years ago. Oh, three years ago, September. Yeah. There we go. Um, and it was a little bit of getting uh, bored of what's going on in Canada, just looking to see, well, being a third culture kid, you know, it'd be nice to go back to Asia. So it was very much a decision between Singapore and Hong Kong. And let's just face it, if you're, if you're 26, yeah. Coming to Hong Kong is a little bit more appealing than going to Singapore, just yeah. ever so slightly. So yeah. And I understand you've also spent a bit of time in Latin America. Is that right? Yep. I blame my dad for that. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I say blame. Thank him. Um, so he, after I went to university, he had the foresight that um, from a banking perspective, Latin America and South America would be the next big thing. Right? So he actually taught himself Spanish. Um, at the age of 50, learned it for five years in Toronto, and then once he reached a point where he couldn't learn anymore in a classroom setting, put up his hand and said, I want a posting to uh, Latin America. Wow. And he went to Costa Rica. Yeah. So I, throughout my university, I got to go visit him in Costa Rica, and then now he's in Puerto Rico uh, dealing with the aftermath of the hurricane as well. Mm -hmm. Because um, from a banking perspective, access to cash, access to loans is crucial in reconstruction. Yeah, right? obviously. So, I think that's something people don't even think about no, when you, there is a disaster. Exactly. They realize the infrastructure around it. It, it was hilarious. The, he's, he sends me, he, and this is a guy who was born in, um, in suburban Bombay, so has grew up in Bombay, went to university in Bombay, so very much used to like the rough lifestyle. Doesn't, stuff doesn't really phase him. Yeah. So the day after the hurricane, he sends me WhatsApp messages. It's like, oh, uh, the hurricane came through. I'm just cleaning up. And he has furniture on his balcony that isn't even his. Yeah. Blown in. <laughs> yeah, it's just, oh, I'm, just, I'm just cleaning up, throwing some, maybe some wow. garbage. I'm like, that's wow. not your barbecue. <laughs> so. It's a good, uh, good frame of mind, I think, to approach those kind of situations. So uh, looking at your sort of career history, you've obviously, uh, you were with KPMG. Um, you've made the leap from corporate to startup effectively. Um, I think many people who would potentially be listening to this or engaged in the ecosystem here in Hong Kong um, are coming to events, learning and looking to maybe make that move. Um, why for you was there a decision to jump from a KPMG and start your own thing? I think part of it was what was happening uh, within the advisory and consulting landscape in North America. Um, somewhere about I'd say now almost five, seven years ago, there's this large shift towards internal consulting. So the company, large companies realize, hey, instead of paying for 
a McKinsey consultant, KPMG, BCG consultant. I can hire them to work full time internal, and these companies are so large that there's there's an unlimited amount of work for these guys. Mm-hmm. So we can get them in, pay. We end up paying probably fifty percent less, but these guys would still get a salary bump over their salaries. Yeah. So it were it was kind of a win win. Um, so we saw that whole shift towards internal consulting in order to make up the gap. A lot of these advisory firms had to uh, dig into downstream services like implementation. So what one of the main reasons I left was I started. It had the whole process had been tainted slightly, where mm-hmm. it wasn't about giving unbiased uh, guidance, objective feedback. Uh, which is really the reason I got into it was being in, coming from an engineering background is very much a problem solving mm-hmm. thing and it become more about how do you position the recommendations to sell a downstream services, mm-hmm. right? Which is a little bit self-serving and mildly unethical. So taking that into account as well as a lot of getting a little bit bored of what was going on, I was like, fine, you know what? There comes a point in a lot of consultants' lives where they say, oh, I'm going to try and be independent for a while. Mm-hmm. So for me, it kind of hit that point where it's like, I've got enough experience in a couple different industries, I can drop myself into any situation, at least be able to survive one one hour meeting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really the impetus of kind of breaking out on my own, trying yeah. on my own stuff, seeing what's out there. Um, and I will say that it's not, it's not easy, it's not for everybody. Like it's it's really hard, especially if you're it's your first time breaking out as an independent, and then on top of that, being parachuted into a completely new geo with no existing networks. Yeah, it's probably four times the work. Yeah. So I really wouldn't recommend it to yeah. anybody. Yeah. And how has the idea evolved? Um, I mean, I've seen it myself over the last year or so in Garage. But how has your initial idea of what you were going to do with the company evolved to where it is today? I think it's um it's slowly evolved. Both from an understanding of what Hong Kong and the Asian market is and where it is on both the technology curve as well as the overall development curve, um, where I and many people in North America, if I talked about Hong Kong, have this view of uh, like, like the Emerald City, right? Mm-hmm. It's this wonderfully bright, shiny object. I'm pretty sure they're thinking of Tokyo, not Hong Kong, when they describe it, um, where everything is very clean, tactical, advanced, all that stuff. Coming here, it was, I quickly found out it was the exact opposite, Mm -hmm. where it was, got so strange where I could map certain trends to North America by just subtracting seven years. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Everything from like the yeah. cupcake trends to yeah, various yeah. ramen trends to how they the, push. We've got the burger trend coming at the moment. Exactly. Here in Kong, which is in London a good five, six years ago. We've got five guys opening soon in Ranchai. Um, and you go to London, it's saturation. We had the Shake Shack queues yep. a couple of months ago. I was in London in the summer and they're on every corner. It's like a 7-Eleven basically. So It's hilarious, right? So I just had to rebase myself, push myself to say, okay, fine, what was happening five years ago? And then that's what you go after. Don't try mm-hmm. to sell don't try to sell large scale digital transformations because yeah. no one really understands it. And if the companies that yeah. have attempted it, they've all failed. Mm-hmm. Right? So over the past three years it has evolved from going after large scale comprehensive digital transformations to more tactical technology engagement, at which point I kind of threw in the towel on the corporate side and said, okay, you know what? The only guys that seem to understand 
at least how technology is really going to impact the next 20 years uh, are the startups in Hong Kong, right? Like, the guys who are building companies in Hong Kong, they're not building companies in Hong Kong for Hong Kong. They're building companies in Hong Kong for China, or they're building companies in Hong Kong for Europe or the US, right? So those are the guys that are actually keeping up with the times, mm-hmm. right? So that's what really pushed us into startups. And then from there, the conversations were very much 50% more on the marketing side, 50% more on the technology side. So, mm-hmm. and there's a nat- when you're in a startup, there is a natural marriage between what you're doing with your technology mm-hmm. and how you approach the marketing, yeah. right? The more integrated, the more tightly coupled you can get those, the lower overall uh, marginal costs and the faster you can scale. Mm-hmm. So it was an easy, it was an e- it's an easy pitch to startups as well as SMEs that want to break out of that rut they've gotten into and say, you know what, if we kind of marry these two concepts, we can actually drive growth, uh, a growth agenda. Yeah. The question is whether or not you can hang on for that ride. Yeah. And there are a couple of uh, startups and uh, SMEs that have said, yeah, sure, that that sounds exactly like we want to do. Mm-hmm. Can you help us chart a course? And, and that's where you step in with Pad39. Exactly. And what, uh, what have some of the challenges been, I guess, that you touched briefly there on maybe more, maybe more the corporate side and the understanding of digital transformation, but working with startups, particularly from a Hong Kong perspective, what has been some of the challenges for you to, to say, seal the deal or, or move further with them? For startups in Hong Kong, there's really two main challenges that I, that I face. So one challenge has been on the funding side. So if you were to drop any person in the valley with an idea, mm-hmm. there is probably a 20 to 40% chance he'll be able to secure about 100 to 500,000 US in funding just with an idea, yeah. right? Maybe you can run a $500 ad campaign on Facebook, get a bunch of signups and use that as validation saying, hey, yep. people want this because I've gotten emails for some ad campaign, right? In Hong Kong, that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. In Hong Kong, you've got to show revenue, like actual pe- dollars flowing through the door mm-hmm. before you can see any real kind of funding, mm-hmm. right? Even Cyberport's own incubation program mm-hmm has the requirement yeah. that you have to have enough capital to yeah. run for a year, yeah. right? Which is a little bit ridiculous because when you enter a normal incubation program, it's, well, you're, we're going to shelter you. Yeah. You're going to work this idea through. And at the end of it, if it seems like you've gotten traction, mm-hmm. then we do a dog and pony show in front of investors. You get your funding and you go, you're off yeah. to the races, right? So it's, <clears throat> it's completely different take on the entire fundraising process, the growth journey of a company that really impacts how a company can, uh, the steps a company takes to grow out, right? Um, uh, But at the same time, all these entrepreneurs are being influenced by talking heads out of the valley, Mm -hmm. right? Saying, oh, well, you know, our tech starts, I just pitch an idea and then I get half a million dollars. I have a $7 million valuation with like a 20-page slide deck, right? So they're they're going into these things thinking they can get this money and then they kind of hit a wall. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the other side is more about how they go about doing the sales, right? Where I encountered a lot of startups where they they assume that 
that almost like I did that Hong Kong is both a highly connected, technologically advanced, digitally aware um, society mm -hmm. where yes, everyone's on their cell phone, yeah. but out of a percentage that actually click through ads, it's actually quite low, right? Yeah. On top of that, how many make uh, online purchases? How many are very comfortable with e-commerce? How many are not just you know, making a, uh, a connection through uh, WeChat or WhatsApp and then meeting an MTR station, for an example? Exactly, right? So just those factors alone mean that you can't do the traditional growth hacking tactics that you would in the Valley, yeah. right? Where there's an, there's an innate assumption that I can take that at least 50% or 20% of my target audience is willing to convert online. Mm -hmm. In Hong Kong, I'd surmise it's probably somewhere between a quarter to half of that. Yeah. Right? So it really impacts your whole growth, mm -hmm. um, your whole growth plan because yeah. you can't you can't count on that those cheap early conversions mm -hmm. to prove your strategy. Yeah. You kind of have to pound the pavement. And you see a lot of uh, startups that have succeeded in Hong Kong, they've had to do it through traditional marketing means, yeah. right? Yeah. Tram wraparounds. Taxi ads, yeah. right? It's literally people handing out a dairy farm. Two days ago, I've noticed has deployed in Wan Chai alone, two to three different places where they're handing out paper catalogs. Yeah, flyers on the street. It's all very traditional. Well, for, uh, for yeah. IKEA, and yeah. IKEA, IKEA corporate has said yeah. they want to move towards electronic. They don't want to use uh, paper catalogs anymore. Yeah. They want to do more distribution of e-flyers yeah. and their electronic catalog, make it easy for people to download. And Dairy Farm, which is licensed, IKEA has gone the yeah. exact opposite direction, where they're like, let's paper the road yeah, yeah. with catalogs. Um, that kind of go, comes nicely to my next question then, is, which is, how effective is thinking outside of the box in Hong Kong? Because I, I took a little uh, deep dive on your LinkedIn, and it seems uh, most of your uh, um, comments from uh, previous employers or people you've worked with is that Brian is very good at thinking outside of the box. Um, but from what you're saying here, it sounds like Hong Kong's very traditional and perhaps thinking outside the box in some of these aspects is not quite the best way to go. I wouldn't say it's not so much thinking outside the box, is you can't use the, the old thinking outside the box tactics that yeah. have worked in other jurisdictions, yeah. right? Where, you just, uh, where if I were to do a guerrilla, uh, like a guerrilla digital campaign mm -hmm. where I push referral codes mm -hmm. through, a, uh, through SMS. Yeah doesn't really work yeah right but then again if, if you're do if you're exploring a tactic you've seen in another jurisdiction are you really thinking outside the box mm -hmm. probably not mm -hmm. the whole idea of the the term outside the box thinking is that given a set of boundary conditions what can I do to put myself a leg up on people with the resources that I have within the market that I have yeah right so to kind of do something that no one else has done, mm -hmm. right? And that's not copying yeah. so what somebody has done in another jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah. That's a market, that's a, then you might as well be building a clone of another startup, right? Mm -hmm. And there's lots of, there's lots of <clears throat> companies that clone Western startups, yeah. and that is a viable business model, yeah. right? So I would say in Hong Kong, I have seen a few pretty innovative ways of doing, um, Doing, uh, doing marketing that kind of works, right? Um, there was one 
we, we had a presentation earlier mm -hmm. from uh, one of my friends where yeah. he had put his company on um, Tinder. Yeah, yeah. Right? Very interesting swipe. <laughs> and there's just people who swiping right yeah. all of a sudden find themselves matched with a company. Yeah, yeah. And then you just hit them with a code. It's one, yeah. one of those things where it's very cheap to implement, mm -hmm. but at the same time, at least gets you some leads. Yeah. If you even get like 10,000 people that swipe right, you dump all those codes in, even five people convert, yeah. From a marginal cost perspective, it's actually quite low. Yeah, so and I think good. the people you've converted as well, if depending on your target audience, they're the right kind of fit for your company because they've probably found some sort of charm or um, some sort of wit in the fact that you've used Tinder to get get your product in front of them. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, another thing that uh, cropped up is uh, your broad experience and knowledge base, <laughs> um, which is I think something that it's definitely been uh, revealed as uh, through the events we do here. Um, you're always talking and sharing on a number of different topics. I think that's something that people who want to get involved in the ecosystem as well are always looking to do. Um, do you have any advice on how to build that broad experience base? Um, you've talked before about your time in consulting and the number of different projects you're involved in. Um, and there's so much um, out there now um, in terms of resource to help you learn. But um, there's also just so much to learn if you really want to have a grip and a handle of, mm -hmm. of how to launch a business in the digital age. Um, so what's your advice to someone in building a broad ex experience and knowledge base? Humility. Yeah. Right. It it's all it starts with humility. Always assume that you know less than the other person you're talking to. Mm -hmm. Right. Always assume that the person you're talking to has something more important than what you're trying to get. Yeah. Right. And if you start from that position, then you can have a wonderful conversation with every single person you meet. Mm -hmm. Right. You can be genuinely interested in what they're doing, and then you need to actively listen to what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and if it sounds interesting or something that you may want to uh, learn more about, what I found is regardless of whether you're in Africa, whether you're in Latin America, whether you're in like, the US, whether you're in Hong Kong, if you show genuine interest in some, what somebody is doing and you say, well, I'd like to volunteer my time and like, help out I'm, I'm, and ask genuine questions that don't necessarily have a particular ulterior motive. Like it doesn't seem like you're trying to sell them something. It doesn't seem like you're trying to extract information. Just be genuinely interested in them as a person and what they're doing. You'll find that they're actually quite receptive. Yeah. Right. And a lot of the startups, a lot of the people that I've gotten involved with in Hong Kong has been through that by just saying, tell me what you're working on offering feedback, having a discussion and just saying, Oh, that's, that, that sounds, that's, that's a great idea. Like, tell me more. Mm -hmm. Like, how? Like, from me coming from a layperson, yeah. I think that these might be challenges. How yeah. do you normally solve it, right? Mm -hmm. And you'll find that most people are like they they're more than happy to talk about themselves, yeah. right? Because in most settings, especially in Hong Kong, where you have the Hong Kong handshake, I hand you business card, I talk talk pleasantries for exactly thirty nine seconds, and then I move I move so, on. Where's that research come from? Thirty nine seconds. <laughs> 30, no, the 39 seconds is a Stargate reference. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's very much, I've, and there are those, um, those kind of um, machine gun sales reps and a lot of events are covered with those people where I have a hard time believing that they're genuinely interested in stuff. Yeah, yeah. Right? Just by their talk track things. I, I, I almost take joy in 
annoying them and holding on to them with yeah. like a death grip and yeah, yeah. following them around and kind of yeah. ruining their great game <laughs> just for fun. Yeah. Like I'll talk to them about food. I can yeah. I can talk to them about the different ways you can make chicken. Yeah, yeah. I can go everything from like grilling, sous vide, all the things. And I will tell them everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And they're just like, why did I ever speak to you? Exactly. <laughs> they're just there to get your, your contacts right and yeah. then uh, get the sales tactics happening the next day. Exactly. Um, which is not really a genuine way to network and to, to build relationships at all. Um, so you're always mentioning the University of Waterloo here in, uh, in Garage. Um, what's your thoughts uh, more specifically on the ecosystems, both from an education standpoint and then the startup ecosystems in Canada and Hong Kong? <laughs> I most likely will get into trouble <laughs> at a few chambers uh, about talking about this, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being a Canadian. I can't really shy away from that fact, right? Um, the whole approach to how you do both education, new uh, youth, on, youth employment and slash unemployment and, um, and how you matriculate from the education stream into the work sphere um, is vastly different, right? I didn't realize how different it was till I started hiring interns mm -hmm. and just going through all the um, all legislation and all the ordinances around um, how, how students get into the workforce, mm -hmm. how students uh, dip their toe in through internships. It's just, just pure wackadoodle. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's the most accurate description you can think of coming from a place like Waterloo, coming from Ontario. Right? Yeah. Um, Canada has a, has a minimum wage mm -hmm. right, that applies to everyone, whether you're a student or not. Um, and then on top of that, um, my university, Waterloo, uh, kind of pioneered this concept of a co-op program where mm -hmm. instead of taking summer uh, summers to go work, what you do is you do four months work and then four months uh, study, four months work and four months study. So a four-year program tends, ends up taking about five years. Wow, that's, that's good though. You get a lot of experience and that's how yeah. building that broad experience and knowledge base. Exactly. You graduate two years of experience yeah. and what's funny is most of my classmates did not qualify for student aid after the first year because yeah. they were earning too much money. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those things where it's like, if the government tells you we can't give you a student loan because yeah. you've earned too much money during your work term, yeah. you know that something is pretty good, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and that comes from a lot of uh, social programs, right? And it's approaching it from, well, if I were to, if I were to give you a grant and say, right, you go and out and hire an intern and the government will pay you up to the minimum wage, mm -hmm. right? Of course, you're going to go out and hire an intern, yeah. right? As like for me as a business, the intern is free, yeah. but the intern's getting paid, yeah. right? So it's it's great for me as a business owner, mm -hmm. right? It's also great for the student because hey, I'm not getting fuzzy end of a lollipop. I'm earning money mm -hmm. that I can count towards my living expenses. I can count it towards my student debt, and then you see company. That's that's the price floor. The price floor is minimum wage, yeah. right? So you see companies essentially trying to compete it. Yeah. I get, I'll give you an example. My second work term, I got paid 800 Canadian a month, mm -hmm. which washes out to about, uh, I think about 40 to 50,000 Hong Kong. Sorry, 40, about 40,000, 30 to 40,000 Hong Kong per month. Yeah. Right? So as, a, as what is essentially a first year student mm -hmm. in university, yeah. I was getting paid more 
yeah. than people who had been working in Hong Kong for five, six years. Yeah. Right. And it was just it's just it was just a pure economics thing where the company was like, well, if we want the cream of the crop, mm-hmm. we can't offer minimum wage. We have to offer double minimum wage. Yeah, yeah. Right? Or triple minimum wage. Okay. And it was just you see companies were competing for talent yeah. in that way. Right? Well, you take in contrast Hong Kong, mm-hmm. where if I hire a student, I can get them to sign a waiver that allows me to pay them basically nothing. Yeah. Well, no, you actually can pay them nothing. <laughs> like I can get a waiver for minimum wage, which is the most ridiculous thing ever. Is yeah. why would a government willingly endorse putting students through poverty? Mm-hmm. Why? Why? Yeah. What? What? From a socioeconomic policy standpoint, there is no benefit, mm-hmm. right? They, that means that they have more, they graduate with student debt, yeah. right? Or it forces them, uh, it forces students to uh, be sponsored by their parents, yeah. limits uh, upward social mobility. Mm-hmm. Like there's a whole slew of things where there is no upside, yeah. right? Yeah. And if you were to take the scenario of paying it from a pure economic standpoint within the macro context, the cost of paying companies to hire students and the cost of getting waivers mm-hmm. is exactly the same from a government coffer standpoint because you recover stuff through economic activity yeah. and taxes. Yeah. And yeah, in the long run. In the long run, your your economy develops more, right? Yeah. Why wouldn't I take the option that um, that encourages economic development yeah. and economic activity? Yeah. That part has that has completely eluded me. I have no idea why that it is. I've actually gotten up in a um, uh, chief executive candidates uh, meeting of the uh, at chambers of commerce and actually ask uh, yep. CE candidates, "This is what we have in Canada. Are you interested?" And the only response I ever got was, "Oh, we have a program that supports interns to travel abroad." I'm like, "Talent drain." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's the we're, exact we're opposite response. Interns, interns to leave the country and not be of any value to us. Well, that's a. Uh, that's a, that's a sad note. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm a Debbie Downer. Um, to kind of wrap things up then, um, and maybe paint a more rosy picture, um, you mentioned previously, you know, digital transformation, we're not ready here in Hong Kong necessarily. Um, where do you see the future um, for digital? Um, obviously, data has been a big, a big, uh, big piece in the news in the last few years, um, particularly recently, um, lots of new policies coming into effect. Lots of new approaches and I think realizations from people on how data is being used and how the apps and devices we use day in day out are, are tracking us. Um, do you think that as people become more aware of that and people um, become uh, perhaps more um, educated around it, that they will um, be a change, or do you think ultimately we're just we're happy for the convenience and? Uh... No, I think um, from from a data standpoint, um, both. Companies will be buying for data, right? Um, and if the large corporates in Hong Kong and family enterprises aren't interested in, eventually they'll just say, I'm just going to start buying data companies, right? Mm-hmm. So these data companies will pop up regardless of whether or not the large corporates want to support them. Um, and from a revenue generation standpoint, uh, these companies are going to be the main source of revenue, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, they're mining information. They're they're essentially finding the markets that nobody's exploited before. So while all the dummies are slugging it out in commoditized markets, these guys are essentially opening up new markets 
right? Yeah. From, however, from a uh, from a citizenry standpoint, so everything from uh, personal privacy, really, uh, what's what information should I uh, should I consider personal? What information should a company protect, like as a steward of my personal information and mm-hmm. collecting? I think that's one that it ha- it has to be a cultural perspective, right? Mm-hmm. It's it stems from how much respect do we have for one another? How much respect uh, do we have for our own personal information, mm-hmm. as well as from a um, uh, holding holding people accountable, how effective are mechanisms for holding people accountable when they do violate either one of those two norms, mm-hmm. right? Um, I'd say on on the second point, which is respect for personal information of my own personal information, I think the newer generation is more willing yep. to give up that information. Mm-hmm. Not though, I feel half of it is because a lack of understanding of what they're giving up and how it can be used. Yeah. Right. And we see that um, when there is a mechanism to hold people accountable for irresponsible use of that information, yeah. it. Uh, limitations are imposed. The people who have volunteered the information realize what's happening. Mm-hmm. They protest against it. The system corrects it based on yeah. that protest, and limitations are placed. Right. However, if the system doesn't exist, then you can run rampant through it. Right? Mm-hmm. And we see that a lot in China, yeah. where it's just a free for all from a data standpoint. Uh, from a company standpoint, if, if companies can go and uh, pull whatever data not really care about it and just kind of spread it all over, sell it and all of that, um, and there's no there's no accountability, then at some point, those young people where they were such a treasure trove of information before will all of a sudden clam up, yeah. right? And they're going to have become more selective in what companies they pick, what, where they um, volunteer information, which is the exact opposite. And the thing is, it's not going to be a slight curve. It's going to be a rubber band effect. Yeah. Where all of a sudden, everyone suddenly yep, boycotts it, right? Mm-hmm. And we see that with Didi uh, on a completely different context. But it is a rubber band effect where yeah. with with the murders uh, yeah. happening with Didi, it was just a instant rubber band snapback saying, started with one KOL, say, one actress saying, I'm not going to, I'm deleting Didi, and then just a tidal wave, yeah. right? It's not something that, oh, I can see a slow drip off of 2% every month. It's, yeah. oh, suddenly we've lost 20% of our installments. Yeah, I think that's the network effect. It can help you, can help with massive growth, but it can also help with this uh, you know, massive decline suddenly in, in a product or exposure. So, yeah. So, and that, and that I'm actually, mo- this is one of those places where I'm impressed from uh, a Chinese regulatory standpoint, where they've taken, uh, they've taken key elements from uh, GDPR mm-hmm. and implemented it into their own data, uh, data standards. Obviously, it's been, massaged a bit to fit within the context of uh, the Chinese framework. Yeah. But it's it's a sad state of affairs when you say China has beta, better privacy protection standards and uh, guidance and requirements from a regulatory standpoint than Hong Kong, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> that's that's very true. But I think we'll, we'll see how the two uh, come together. <laughs> it'll be, it'll be interesting. Yeah. Um, so just to wrap up, um, any, any thoughts on what's going to be happening over the next year in Hong Kong? What are you doing with Path39? What's exciting you about the world? of tech, um, are you on the same train as the government around fintech, retail, <laughs> smart technologies, smart cities, um, or are there other areas that are really kind of 
drawing your attention at the moment? So we're concentrating stuff. Um, we're concentrating our efforts in two areas: our R and D, uh, which is really me, uh, me yelling at developers at two in the morning or mm-hmm. tinkering around on my computer, uh, is more around um, influencers, content marketing, trying to uh, come up with different ways we can turn and kind of streamline influencers' content marketing to something that can be easily used by larger corporates right now. That whole segment, there's a lot of great ROI, but mm-hmm. it has serious inefficiencies. Yeah. So coming from an engineering standpoint, that's yeah. where the opportunity is. Um, on the other side also, um, we're swinging heavily back into fintech where mm-hmm. we had a large, I would say like 20% of our portfolio was fintech related projects and that's yeah. just swinging up where mm-hmm. we're seeing because of a lot of emphasis both the government is placing as well as things like PSD2 in yeah. Europe mm-hmm. um, as well as uh, the shifts in the global, fin- uh, global financial sphere where we do see a looming recession. There's more disinterest around uh, risk metrics, how do you protect money. Um, same thing in Hong Kong. There was an article that came out uh, two days ago on Bloomberg where yeah. there's a shortage of wealth managers in Hong Kong. Oh, wow. So, so people, yeah. So <laughs> we, it's literally like one once every two weeks, I'll have a conversation with somebody who has left a big bank mm-hmm. to open their own wealth management shop. Okay. Right? And then so Bloomberg published an article where essentially wealth managers are getting uh, uh, sniped and scooped up from other firms with the promise of a twenty percent, a 30% pay bump. Wow. Right? It's just there's a shortage. There's only 10,000 uh, wealth managers on the island, but apparently okay. just there's about a million new, uh, there's a million new uh, billionaires getting minted where it's like, we just don't have enough wealth managers for these guys. Yeah. So across the financial sphere, there's a lot of activity happening, right? And from a Hong Kong perspective, losing a lot of that mantle to Singapore, it's now a clamor to try and get it back. So I see from a Hong Kong perspective, definitely um, there is a understanding that they do need to move in that direction. Whether or not that materializes into proper programs and proper initiatives has yet to be seen. Um, The... uh, the new payment system is getting released uh, over the next few. Uh, oh, September! They're getting released actually this. The um, new payment system. Yes. So um, RTGS has been in place for I think just over ten years. No, a few more than ten years right mm-hmm. now. So whenever you send a interbank transfer, yeah, you use what's called the Chats or RTGS system, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a real-time settlement gateway. So uh, unlike a lot of developed countries, that system only works during business hours. Okay. Right, so only yeah. between I think nine, uh, sorry, eight thirty a.m. and yeah, you'll get a message saying tomorrow. Exactly. So if you try to send, if you try to send money to another bank uh, on the weekend, it just doesn't go through. Yeah. So the new payment system, which is uh, HKMA is launching uh, this month, and wow. everyone should have gotten at least uh, a small uh, flyer from their bank, essentially mm-hmm. changing the terms and conditions because. And it, it's a complete overhaul of the T's and C's because they're using this new system. Okay. It'll be 24-hour continuous real-time settlement. Nice. So, Finally. Yeah, I know. I was like, I can actually send you money, which in, in um, from a sh- when Hong Kong was shipping, it didn't really matter as much. Yeah. But if Hong Kong really wants to do fintech or any sort of digital payments, yeah. that would be totally vital. 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 It's vital, right? So that'll, that'll make things a lot more interesting. Okay. Well, that's a, a nice... 
Last bit of news to finish this podcast <laughs> on. So thanks to Brian Vaz of Pad39 for joining us today on this uh, first episode of the new series of Startup Works Podcast. Um, I've been James Bernardo, the program director here at Garage Society, and this has been Startup Roast.